One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's episode, I have first-time guest Charlie Clawson swinging by to talk about one of his favourite cult movies, Near Dark. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I want you to remember that fire we started in Chicago on Big Squid. to have Charlie Clawson making his Big Squid debut to talk about one of his favourite cult movies, Near Dark. It is a film that I had not seen in decades, but we locked it in and then we discovered it isn't on any streaming platforms, like none. It was quite a shock. And just even in modern times, to not be able to find a movie that you want to find at the drop of a hat like what is this 1993 like come on people uh so what we ended up doing was checking out some key scenes on youtube and uh, we watched a making of and then that allowed us to uh, discuss this movie so when we're talking about it if you haven't seen it before or you have and you're thinking that you might like to watch it again maybe we'll inspire you to find other ways of downloading it we're not encouraging you to do that kind of download but if you want to that's up to you but anyway I loved having Charlie on the show and I reckon we're pretty keen to have him come back and uh, do more uh, conversations and uh, share some more thoughts on some cult movies that he loves a gentle reminder that if you live in Sydney our next live podcast is on May 2nd at Giant Door from 5 p.m and the topic is can we still enjoy it my guests include Richard Feidler, Alice Fraser, Rove McManus, Ange Lafoypierre, AJ Lamarck, Georgia Mooney, Alexi Toliopoulos, and Ben Elwood. And some of the topics that have been floated to me that we're going to discuss in Can We Still Enjoy It? The Carry On Movies, <laughs> the music of Morrissey, and Serena Williams. So if you're thinking, God, that feels like a really heavy subject, well, it is. But we are also going to be discussing some pretty funny things to get your head around. Like, I'll give you just a bit of a brief 
glimpse of what I'm going to talk about. I am not a Tom Cruise fan in any way. I fucking love the Mission Impossible movies. Love them. I think they're great. So that's some of the areas that we will be finding ourselves in at the show. It's a fun lineup. We have lots of other interesting discussions ready to go. So if you'd like to join us, you can find tickets at the Giant Dwarf website. Time to bring Charlie in. You may know him from his podcast work with Will Anderson on Tofop and all of their spin-offs. Maybe you know him from his acting work on everything from Home and Away to Wolf Creek. That's a wild swing, isn't it? He can do both. That's how talented he is. Charlie and I have been mates for a long time and his love of cult movies is unparalleled amongst my mates. So, as I said earlier, I'm wrapped to have him on the podcast. I don't want to be fighting about with anything else. I want to get straight to it. And we are talking about Catherine Bigelow's first film, Near Dark. Hey, huh? I'm going to separate your head from your shoulders. Do it fast. All right. The time's rolling. No. You might as well just kill me then, too. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for us to get home. You help me out. What are you on? Believe me, I told you. Don't think of it as killing. Amen. Amen. Don't think at all. It's something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of how. Nerves. I would be too if I were you. Near dark. Could be your boys fall in with control. Check out time. some time, son. I damage my family, let him go! Near dark. Pray for daylight. The night has its price. This is being recorded the day after Arclight cinemas are closing in the states and it feels right that your first time on big squid is after such a momentous moment because you love movies i love movies did did a part of you feel a little bit depressed by that news yeah well look you know i've had a kid in the last 18 months so i have not been to a cinema in that time so it does feel like a distant memory but when i was in la the arc light was my um, you know, it was my go-to cinema, you know, I, I, there, there was two, there was the new Beverly where, you know, it was a revival cinema, which is where Tarantino would show, you know, assault and precinct 13 and, and, you know, films like that. Um, but the arc light was where I'd go for your left of center kind of more art house films. I saw the endless there, which is one of my favorite genre films of recent years. I saw annihilation, uh, there, which was a film that I was baffled by and thought I hated at first. And then, you know, 
over the next four or five days could not stop thinking about it and could not get the soundtrack out of my head and kind of realized, I think I actually fucking love this film. Um, yeah, it's really, it, it's really sad. It, it, it's such a sad, um, uh, uh, sign of, of where we're headed. I think we all kind of know that this is probably where we're going, that the idea of kind of, you know, cinema chains and, and even boutique cinemas are probably an endangered species. And it's hard to sort of argue against it because, you know, the home experience can be great now. You know, we've got 4K TVs and surround sound, but there is something about that shared experience. I saw Get Out at the Arclight in LA on like the opening weekend, the packed cinema. You know, and that experience I'll never forget, you know, particularly as I was probably one of the only white guys in there. And when you consider the themes of that film, yeah. you know, like it's especially kind of like a powerful. Um, but, yeah, no, it's really sad. Did you go to the Arclight much when you were in L.A.? Yeah, that was my favourite uh, cinema to go to as well. And it was like it was a good walking distance from uh, where I was staying. And so you just wander down, see the movie. Mm. I'm also a little bit like you in that. Sometimes you come out of a film and you don't know how you feel about it. You don't know exactly how you want to think about it and you want to let it sit for a while. So being able to have that little walk back, uh, that's funny what you say about Annihilation. That's how I felt about Cloud Atlas. I walked out of Cloud right. Atlas going, I don't know how I feel about that at all. And then, <laughs> you know, five days later, you're still thinking about it. You've downloaded the soundtrack, you're reading the book and you're thinking, no, I reckon it must have worked on some level. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it, with, with cinema? Because I find that, you know, with something like Annihilation, because I saw it with um, a mate of mine, Greg McLean, who, uh, you know, he's the guy, creator of Wolf Creek, and and he loved it, you know. And and I was sort of not arguing with him in the car on the way home, but I was like, but, you know, it wasn't, you know, this didn't make sense and that didn't make sense and this seemed to be disconnected and what was that interpretive dance at the end and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, his whole... Um, taken it was like but it's the world that they took you to like did you not just get taken away from reality for even if it was not making sense that is the intention that it's not every film is about like linear storytelling and i think it's because i write and also you know i've probably been dumbed down after and i love marvel movies but you know they are very kind of like tightly structured you know first act second act third act and you expect a resolution at the end and i think i was trying to graft you know that onto what was a very different uh, 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 experience. Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, it's Sometimes you do have to think your way through a movie, and I reckon you're right. Things have been dumbed down to a certain extent, not by meaning to dumb things down, but, you know, take the Marvel movies as an example. There's a blueprint, and mm. once you get the blueprint embedded in your psyche over well over a decade it starts to mean that when you come across something that is slightly different it's harder to kind of get on top of it that was like yeah. with cloud atlas i had to have the actual thought of one of the storylines look like a cheap 70s detective tv show for me mm. to suddenly think oh hang on that's the genre that's what it's meant to look yeah. like oh all of these yeah. things are different genres put together in a non-linear form but tell a mosaic of a story and that was my only way of but i had to think something negative to then realize i was wrong that's actually the intention and then it opened up the movie for me yeah i mean it's always that that discussion around art isn't it it's like you know if art is not made for an audience then what is the point of it you know like you can do that on your own why exhibit it why spend millions on marketing if you if you want to baffle an audience but i don't necessarily think 
that is what the Wachowskis, you know, are trying to do or what, you know, Alex Garland was trying to do. You know, I think that what they are, what they're doing is following a thematic link. Like you say, you know, with Cloud, I mean, Cloud Atlas is a incredibly complex, multi-layered narrative, but, you know, something like Annihilation, which is really the theme is about, you know, creation and destruction. You know, that is the, that is the theme of the film. You know, it's the, the, the subplot of a, of a woman who her husband has gone away and has cheated on him, you know, destroying her relationship. And then she's called out to go investigate this thing that he went and sought out that destroyed him, you know. And so this constant sort of cycle of like we create, we destroy, we create, we destroy. But those, I think those kind of messages, all those deep thematic things can't be, um, delivered straight away like they do need to percolate for a while you do need to go away and think about it i've worked with a few different um script uh mentors and 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 writers uh when i had uh, scripts and development at screen australia and a lot of them would talk about you know what is the theme of your film and they would say that you know the theme doesn't come to you straight away you often have to write a couple of drafts before you start seeing where it's taking you you know i think writers all work differently and and some people are very plot driven other people are you know just trying to create like an atmosphere other people have a, a very strong message you know they're trying to subvert something but often the theme doesn't come to you until you've actually spent time with those characters or those scenes and gone, oh, this is actually a film about loss or, you know, this is a film about love or or any of those kind of things. And I love discovering that. Like I love, you know, film literature and film writing and and, and, and reading reviews and I often drive Gemma insane because I'll ha- often have my phone out while we're watching something and I'll be straight onto IMDb to look up the trivia right. for a film to find out, <laughs> what were they thinking? How did this come about? <laughs> I love that stuff as well. That's uh, you know, that's the 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 bit that you want to get straight into as soon as a film's finished and just really chew your way through something. I love it. Yeah. The have you ha- ever had any work where someone has said to you, "Hey, I really like this thing that you've produced, and it's about this," and you've thought, "Oh fuck, is it?" And then you've had to look back <laughs> at it and realize that. Well, yeah, we, Gemma and I, we made a, a short film that did quite well for us called The Wake, which was, uh, uh, based on, on my life. It's about a, a 10 year old, um, it's all set in the one day. It's about a 10 year old at the, the funeral of his father, The Wake. And, um, the day of shooting it was just like a disaster. We just had torrential rain and then br- typical Melbourne day, like torrential rain in the morning, then bright hot sunshine in the afternoon and someone mowing their lawn and the property next to where we were shooting. And just the whole thing was an exhausting mess. And then we got into the editing room and it's like, oh God, like you got constant sounds and, and these shots don't match each other. And it's just, it, this is just a, a dog's breakfast. So anyway, we, we cut it together as best we could and um, we sent it out to a bunch of festivals and lo and behold, we started getting into like a bunch of international festivals. And I remember where we really felt like, oh, wow, this is this has actually got a bit of momentum was when we went to the States. Like it really did well and it got into Tribeca, it got into Palm Springs. And I remember like Palm Springs is an amazing film festival, the short film festival. If there's any filmmakers listening to this who are wondering what festivals to enter into, the, the Palm Springs one is amazing because not only do they have this like giant marketplace attached and workshops every day and you can meet industry professionals, but the audience is there genuinely love film and not just feature films with stars short films and so you're treated like you know you are at at Cannes or Sundance and so I remember we had a screening of it and I was sitting there cringing because there's a lawnmower in the background of that shot and then the very next shot doesn't match the other one because now it's bright sunshine when in the the matching shot it was rain 
But afterwards, we did a Q&A and this person was like, excuse me, that idea to have the lawnmower going in the background, was that was that to reflect the character's inner turmoil? And I'm like, yes, yes, 100%. Uh, yes, that, that was all a stylistic choice. But I mean, I think in a lot of ways, there is a lot of unconscious storytelling that goes into filmmaking, you know, like especially in movies. Uh, where you're bringing so many components to bear. So you have the director and you have the writer and you have the actors and you have the production designer, and then you have the composer and then you have the sound designer. And each one of them is bringing an element, you know, to the movie. And, and, and when it's done well, it enhances it. And there's a, there is like a, a synchronicity. When it doesn't work is when, you know, people are clearly on a different page. You know, I, I know you've just done a, a Justice League episode. Uh, I haven't heard it yet, but I imagine there was some discussion around the original theatrical iteration. And that is just the worst example of when it's a, a film by committee as opposed to a bunch of like-minded artists getting together. Oh, yeah. Ben made the suggestion of uh, watching Joss Whedon's hatchet job and then re-watching <laughs> Zack Snyder straight afterwards, which at first I – thought was the worst fucking idea I'd ever heard, but actually ended up, by the time you were finished, was fascinating, and that, I didn't like that Whedon version, and now I despise it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you go, wow, what is happening here? And all these little weird kind of digs at it as well. It's like he's making fun of it while he's coming in. And- That's his... But that's his thing, right, though. Yeah. That's his shtick. It's kind of those, like, you know, he, he his characters are kind of, like, quirky and flippant and, you know, doesn't take anything too seriously and will undermine a moment of kind of gravity with, a with a like, a quip. Uh, I, I sort of feel like he is on a hiding to nothing. Like, he took over that project with, you know, probably some of the most toxic fans <laughs> in the world. You know, of course he didn't have to take the job, but you could also view it you know, from another point of view, which is that, you know, Zack Snyder experienced his family tragedy and they needed to complete this project. And, you know, he stepped up to the plate to make sure that a bunch of people didn't lose their jobs. You know, I look, I know there's people have a lot of problems with Joss Whedon. I feel like, you know, the, the, there are worse disasters in the world than the theatrical release of the Snyder Cut. I mean, of, of, of Justice League. It's, uh, but I guess it's more, it's just the. It's not the things that he does normally. It's just the tone of some of them. Like some of the mm. jokes, there is something a little bit acerbic. And I know it's hard to difficult. Like it's difficult to watch it now with everything that's going on. The nose. Yeah, but yeah. you know, I think there was well, just a a level of. I think when you come in to do something, you have to sometimes suppress some of your own things to try yeah. and make something work. Well, let me ask you. So, did you like Thor Ragnarok? Oh, so we had a... I saw that with you. Uh, We were in the cinema at the same time. And I remember walking out and you had loved it. And you said to me, how'd you feel? And I was really nonplussed by it. And I couldn't work out why. And it took me uh, about a year before I rewatched it. And I really enjoyed it. And I I realised what... Funnily enough, after saying how much I love the cinema experience, a premier cinema experience can yeah, sometimes be hard yeah. work because it felt like everyone was reacting as if Hemsworth and Tyker were sitting next to us. <laughs> and I think because there was lots of laughter of preempting, and it was almost like, oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah. I got that joke. I got that joke too. Yeah. And so then rewatching it without anyone around, I really enjoyed it. Well, I have spoken to a few different friends of mine who don't like it and they don't like it for the same reasons you were suggesting about, you know, Joss Whedon is like any moment where they seem to kind of, of sincerity 
or gravitas is immediately undermined with a joke. Now, I don't mind that. Like, uh, I, I, I like Taika as a director. I can take or leave, you know, a lot of his films. I love Boy. Hunt for the the Wilder People, which everyone loves. I'm, I'm okay on it. You know, I think it's all right. But once we got to Thor, I'm like, well, this is someone totally embracing the campiness of this hairless space viking <laughs> you know like it, it it like i love the fact that it felt like flash gordon and you know uh all those films that we sort of those cheesy canon films that that we grew up on it was just like oh this is a dude who gets like i i, I did hear a i don't know if this is verified but I, I did hear somewhere that apparently in his pitch to get the job he had just cut together big trouble in little china right. the idea being that big trouble in little china sort of flips the kind of action hero genre on its head by the guy who you think, you know, Jack Burton is the hero, is actually completely incompetent. It's actually his sidekick who's doing all the like, he's doing all the fighting and, and solving all the, the the puzzles and all that kind of stuff. And Jack is the Jack's going through this film thinking he's the hero, but he's actually not. And I and if you apply that kind of um, lens to, to Thor, I think it makes a lot more sense. Oh man, and also. Uh- one of the great last moments in a movie, Big Trouble Little China, when, when he, hey, ain't you going to kiss a goodbye, Jack? No. And he just wanders <laughs> off. <laughs> but, yeah, that is a, a movie that is, if you, the first time you watch it, you're thinking, what is happening with this film? And then you realise it's this subtle subversion of all mm. the tropes that we take for granted, I guess. So so ahead of its time, Big Trouble in Little China, like, the Asian influence, like, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the sort of action comedy. It's really uh, – look, uh, John Carpenter's doing fine. I'm sure he's getting residuals for all the Halloween sequels. But it is baffling to me that such an amazing director who created, you know, some of like Halloween, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, that none of them ever – Starman, you know, like came out the same year as E.T. Like these are all classic films and – in ter- if you're a genre lover, like, you know, right at the absolute pinnacle, but he just could not get that mainstream success. And, it, you know, I've read interviews and he seems kind of embittered right. <laughs> by it. Like the fact that, I mean, it must be frustrating to know that you're a very talented filmmaker, to have influenced. Like if you look at half the horror directors working today, they're all, you know, devotees of, of John Carpenter. Um, but it is like a shame. You, you know, if you had a time machine, you want to go back and just grab those audiences in the 80s, just knock the Walkmans off their heads and say, hey, pay attention to this flake. It's amazing. This should be number one in the box office, not E.T. <laughs> Man, Star- Starman <laughs> is an underrated film and also one of the great Jeff Bridges performances as well. Like it feels like yeah. ever since The Big Lebowski, we kind of forget that, he has a lot of different types of performances under his belt that are incredibly nuanced. And that is, that's a performance that if you get it wrong, mm. it's, it's borderline, you know. Uh, it's laughable. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, what's his name in Tropic Thunder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. that's where it's right on the edge. But it's, 100%. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. And what yeah, bad no, luck. I, uh, yeah, I think that, that Jeff Bridges seems to be someone who is unafraid by any role. Like he will do Tron Legacy, no problem. You know, then he'll do Fabulous Baker Boys. And then it's like, oh, there's nothing he really can't play. And he seems to be one of those guys who just seems to embrace the genre he is in. Like I can't really think of, 
I mean, ha- I guess what the one has he? He's never done action, action, has he? He's always been kind of. Oh, he's in. He's done genre films. Yeah, he was in Blow Up, but that's kind of a little bit more political intrigue, espionage, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I don't know. Oh, what was um, the movie with Clint Eastwood, Thunderfoot and? From uh, light, 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 lightning and th- thunderfoot. Yeah, is that it? <laughs> I, don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's from but the, the 70s. Character, the, the point being, there's nothing that Jeff Bridges can't do. Even now, if he wanted to do some kind of crusty gunsling, oh, he's done that a bunch of times. True Grit, I guess. <laughs> so he's done everything. He's done everything. Like my favorite movie of his, I can't watch too often. Uh, which is, you know, have you seen him in uh, the Peter Weir movie Fearless? Uh, I saw it a long... Is that with Rosie? Rosie um, Perez, yeah. Rosie Perez, yeah. Like, I saw it years ago, but I can't really remember it. it. It's a stunning performance, but the plane crash bit is just so realistic that, you know, it was actually a good pandemic movie when you knew you weren't going to fly for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you watch that, you watch a live. Yeah. (laughs) So then you forget. uh, Dark Knight Rises. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So then when you get into a plane and then you you feel that bump, you don't immediately picture Jeff Bridges and Fearless going, fuck, is this it? So, (laughs) but the... The absolute bad luck of something like Starman coming out at the same time as E.T. And we were uh, having a text conversation and you brought up the movie Near Dark, which Mm. I have not seen in a long time. And that movie comes out just as Lost Boys comes out. Like, doesn't Lost Boys come out like about six weeks before or something? Yeah, almost exactly the same time, 1987. Lost Boys, which was the, you know, the big studio, Warner Brothers were behind it. They had Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Patrick, this back when the Corys were hot. Like, it is the, the, the movie marketer's wet dream. And then you have this weird little, you know, it's a, it's a horror western, but it's, it's more than that. You know, I, I, I was trying to think, you know, um, when I first saw it and, I can't really remember the first time. I've watched it so many times, but I think I saw it. It was like one of those late night, you know, Saturday night, you know, when I was a teenager, I caught it on Channel 9 or something like that with ad breaks. And even with ads and stuff and probably the censorship that that you had in the mid-90s, I was like, this film, like, what is this? I just became completely obsessed with um, everything about it, found out about Catherine Bigelow, realized that she directed Point Break. And in the intervening years, it sort of – you know, uh, just forgotten about it. But then when DVDs and Blu-rays started coming in in the early 2000s, I started tracking down every copy I could get because I just sort of felt like this film was a forgotten classic. Like everything about it, um, technically, uh, the story, the way they reinvent, you know, the vampire genre in a way that not even Lost Boys did. Lost Boys contemporized the vampires, but they still had the gothic tropes of stakes in the heart. And, you know, there was this kind of like their sexy, you know, kind of um, uh, night dwellers. Whereas this is a film, like if you took away the blood and it was about heroin or ice, the whole story makes just as much sense. You know, a naive farm boy meets a girl whose family live, you know, on the road. They're nomads, they're drug addicts, and, you know, she gives him his first hit and then he's on the run with these guys. Like, it is the, – the the metaphor is so simple. Like, it seems so obvious. And, I mean, I know uh, – like, when I, when I started reading um, Preacher, I couldn't work out why Preacher, the comic book – I haven't really seen the series, but I couldn't work out why the comic book felt so familiar. And then I realized, oh, this is just like – 
Near Dark, merging the two genres of the Western and the vampire. And even Cassidy bears a striking resemblance to Severin, the Bill Paxton character, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hadn't actually thought about that before. I haven't read Preacher in such a long time. But as soon as you brought up uh, Preacher, it was like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's yeah, going well, on. The lead, the, in, the, in Preacher, the lead character is Jesse. In uh, Near Dark, uh, Lance Henriksen's character is called Jesse. And I just also think it's all the... It's all, you know, the the idea of merging the two genres because they have similarities. Like the idea, there is a romance to the old west, and there is a romance to kind of gothic horror. But then, sort of like modernizing it, it just felt way ahead of its time. Like I, I actually. I can't think of another – I'm not really I'm not a vampire movie kind of guy. I'm a horror movie kind of guy, but, you know, like I, I've never really been someone who's excited for New Twilight or anything like that. But this film to me, you know, we were talking um, – when you uh, called me a couple of weeks ago to suggest coming on the show and we are talking about Fury Road and we had a long chat about, you know, the, the great miss – uh, interpretation of Fury Road is there's no plot because it's such a simple plot. You know, they go on the road, they turn left. You know, that's the on the surface, that's what the plot is. But all the storytelling is in the performance and the production design and the wardrobe design. And I think that's what Near Dark absolutely nails is that each of those, if you just take the four members of the family, you know, Jesse, Diamondback, Homer, and Severin, and you look at their wardrobe and the language they use or how they choose to phrase things, you're getting little hints the whole film along about who they were before they became a vampire. Now, you and I have cheated because we've watched the behind the scenes, but, you know, it's just amazing details like, you know, uh, Jesse Lance Henriksen has that long ponytail that's uh, that's covered in wax because that's what civil uh, uh, soldiers in the Civil War era used to do was to like uh, uh, clamp down their, their ponytails with wax. You know, um, uh, Homer's 1950s outfit. Like I just love all that stuff. Diamondbacks. You know, uh, roots growing through her hair because, you know, she was, uh, turned in the, in the Great Depression and, you know, she wants to keep that glamour look, but, you know, she's a nomad and she can't uh, afford to be bleaching her hair when she's on the run. So she's got these roots growing through. Like, that's all stuff that means you can watch this film a dozen times and, and, and keep finding more and more detail. Yeah. And there's all these implications, aren't there, in the, in their backstory when they're talking about things where, a scene will progress and then you think, wait a minute, did you cause the great fire in Chicago? Like, was that you guys, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And it just kind of builds on it in that way. And it's uh, it's like a palimpsest, isn't it? You've got your story yeah. here and the more you dig into it, the more you find out about these characters. I tell you what, it's got one of the great Bill Paxton performances. Oh, like, absolutely spellbinding. I mean... He, what a year he had from 86 to 87. Like, it comes off Aliens and then goes into to Near Dark. And, I mean, if you didn't know him, if you didn't see him interviewed, you would assume that he's just this kind of yokel redneck because he just plays that kind of character so well. But, you know, there's the real skill in, in that character is Severin is such a reprehensible, horrible, uh, you know, character, but he's so goddamn charismatic, you know, like that bar scene, which, you know, I, uh, last night I just, uh, cause the crazy thing is, um, for people listening to this, it's not available on any streaming services, which I just find absolutely baffling. Um, so I had to watch some clips on YouTube just to kind of catch up on, on the film. And I watched the bar scene again, which is 
pretty harrowing, like even by today's standards. And that's the other thing about it is like vampires are always sexy. You know, they're always sexy and there's a kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of considered to be like this, ooh, you know, the, you know, make, uh, getting bitten by vampires like the equivalent to, you know, making love or something. Not with these vampires. It's fucking horrifying. <laughs> like they will cut your throat and bleed you out into like a beer glass. You know, there's just this, they'll burp after they take a big drink of blood. Like the, everything about it is just so fucking dirty and gross. And it sort of makes you realize that, yeah, I guess if you were immortal, because we have this idea that if you're immortal, well, you've just accrued massive wealth because, you know, you've invested smartly and you know, after 200 years, that's a little nest egg. What if you're a shit vampire? What if you did, haven't invested wisely? You know, you're just living hand to mouth. You would have that kind of, um, you know, that, uh, that, that sort of scavenger existence. I think Lance Henriksen put it perfectly in that behind the scenes where he talks about they're like wolves. They just live on the outskirts of society feeding off the slow and the dumb. <laughs> and I think that, and I think that's perfect. That's what they would be like. It's so uh, bringing up the barroom scene, I uh, watched once again, like you, I had to watch things on YouTube because I, I set aside some time, especially after watching the doco that you sent me. I was like, right, let's get to it. And then, you know, half yeah. an hour later, I'm like, where the fuck is this film? <laughs> but that barroom scene is harrowing and really funny. And I don't know, it reminded me when we were younger men. And we used to go out yeah. and then the place we were at would close and when we'd go somewhere else and then you'd think, ah, oh, you know what, let's pop into this place for one last drink <laughs> on the way home and you'd be having a really good time talking to the people in the bar and then one of the guys in the bar, you would make a joke and he'd look at you and say, what'd you say? And you'd think, oh, fuck, yeah. this has just gotten really scary. And that's what that reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, there is that underlying tension, even though Bill Paxton is cracking jokes and stuff. Because you know what he's capable of and what's coming, it's just this really uneasy, you know, feeling. It sort of reminds me a bit of, um, and this is a weird stretch, but like Snowtown, you know, uh, Snowtown, the way that they, you know, those characters are just like the dregs of society, you know, and every interaction, there is some. You're just waiting for the penny to drop. When are they going to do something shit and horrible and disgusting? Like, what is this about? If they're being nice to someone, you know, what are they? Why are they being nice to them? When's the when, when's the when's the other shoe going to drop? And you know, that's the the brilliance of the film and those performances. Like Lance Henriksen, you know, again, like Bill Paxton, the the one two punch of Aliens and and then Near Dark. But I would argue that Near Dark is the more memorable complete performance like he is so menacing like he looks menacing you know and, and it's like from an acting point of view i often think about like how do you project physical menace when you're a little guy you know because lance henriksen doesn't strike me as like a particularly big guy and in this role he lost a bunch of weight so he looks like a goddamn skeleton but Everything about him just suggests that he would eat you alive if he had the chance. Oh, he's really sinewy and he looks like yeah. he'd, uh, you know, he, he could bench press more than someone who's really muscly and you'd be like, I don't quite understand how that happened. Also, one of the things that I think people often forget is that, you know how everyone is funny to somebody? And I think when when you decide someone isn't your sense of humour, you say they're not funny. Well, the actual sentence is they're not funny to you, but other people mm. might find them funny. And they all make each other laugh, and that's what's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, there is that kind of um, – it's that – yeah, it's, it's that, that barroom scene really sums it up where they are laughing and having a great time because they know what's about to happen. I mean, the, 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 there is that um, – there is that uh, uh, really interesting sort of dynamic too where you've got – Caleb, who's the you know the farm boy who's just been converted, and he's sort of like the audience advocate in that moment because you know, like we said, they're although they're villains, they're incredibly charismatic, and there's something fun about like you know being anarchists and living by your own rules and getting away with shit that other people wouldn't. And so you're with them, you know, you're with them in the bar. You fuck these rednecks, like let's go in and start some trouble, you know. Maybe we'll throw a few punches or something like that. Yeah, but they don't just do that, do they? <laughs> like they cut a barmaid's throat, they slice open some dude's neck with a with a with spur. They they kill the bar the bartender, like, and then you see Caleb go, "Holy shit!" Like this is this is where I am now. Yeah, and the look on his face. He's uh, Adrian Panisar is How old is he in this movie? Like he looks like he's about twenty one. Like he looks even younger than that, doesn't he? He looks so fresh and and. Uh, <laughs> The funny thing about him too is like I, I, I have always felt like that he's my least favorite, you know, um, member of the cast. Or I just, I, you know, I, I always thought that I, I didn't like him. And then what I've realized after multiple reviewings is that it's actually perfectly cast. Like he, he is unlikable because by comparison to the other cast members, he does not have like a tenth of their charisma, but he's not meant to. No. Like he is perfectly cast because he's meant to be this naive hayseed who doesn't really know what the fuck is going on the whole time. And so, you know, he's playing catch up the, the whole time. And I think that, you know, what I initially perceived as being like an, a pretty bland performance, that's exactly – he couldn't be – the hero or the, you know, I mean, sorry, he's the hero, but he couldn't be on the same level of charisma as Bill Paxton because that would undermine Severin, you know, and he couldn't be as menacing as Jesse because that would undermine Lieutenant's performances. And I think that, you know, Jenny Wright as May, like the way she's introduced into the film, you know, and, and, and her, she's almost perfectly cast as well because she sort of, she has this real ethereal, quality to her i mean she's obviously like a beautiful woman and all that kind of stuff but there is something there's something i don't know like um untethered about her like she belongs to the group but she doesn't you know and she and she just sort of the way she's introduced where she's just so mysterious and alluring and you can totally understand why you know this cowboy would fall in love with her and you know and and even though she's talking saying all these strange things about the moon and you know the music and you know it's deafening and all that kind of crazy stuff it's because she's like this um she's like a siren I guess, like, and again, it's it's perfect, it's perfect casting because she's not overplaying it. She's not trying to play sexy. She's not playing ingenue. You genuinely feel that this is this is the the this is what the actress would be like in real life. And you know, I guess a lot of that credit has to go to to Catherine Bigelow. You know, I mean, she's the one who is wrangling all those performances. And you know, I, I think there is a, a danger when you're playing big characters. You know, like the Vampire Family or the love story between Caleb and May that it can get too big, you know, that the, 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 the performances get too big or that, you know, the love story gets too overwrought, but she just keeps this really beautiful naturalism to this vampire Western, which sounds like almost a non, like nonsensical statement. Yeah, no, but it's true. And the fact that, uh, as you were saying about Caleb as well, you know, 
that performance has to be so nondescript to make sense as mm. to why he would end up with all of these people. But he's still compelling enough that you want to see him get away at the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is an element. I think, well, is it is it that you want to see him get away with it or, us, you know, or triumph over evil or whatever it is? Or is it more you want to see what happens to this crazy family of vampires because i think maybe that's the more compelling narrative is like they're the anti-heroes it's bonnie and clyde you know it's titanic we know that it's a we know that it's a it's going to be a terrible end but we want to we want to see that like if i have some criticisms of of the film i think that the third act is a little rushed like i feel like there's this great build and then <clears throat> stylistically it looks amazing but I feel like, you know, the the blood transfusion and then, you know, it comes this sort of like, you know, 80s action film. It all feels a little neat and, and unsatisfying. Um, but having said that, I don't really know. I can't think of a, another way that you would in that film because Caleb has to take them on. I, I just think, you know, I, I wish that they had sort of pursued the, you know, the um, the metaphor of addiction and followed that to the end rather than it just becoming a generic 80s action film where the bad guy, you know, is blowing him up and hitting him with trucks and stuff like that. You know, maybe he could have been smarter about, you know, what the addicts want. They want blood. You know, maybe Caleb uses his brain. But I guess that wouldn't fit with the character. He's a, he's a fairly dumb farm boy, so maybe well, that wouldn't well, work. Th- this is one of those classic movies, though, that you look at uh, now and you think, well, now it's – a three-season TV show on HBO, right? Yeah, and it's and yeah. you get to well, explore actually, all of that. Fu- funnily enough, years ago when I was in LA, I was um, I uh, I auditioned for the Near Dark reboot. They were going to do back when um, Michael Bay uh, uh, Michael Bay was he had Platinum Dunes. I don't know if he still does, but Platinum Dunes were doing were just churning out a whole bunch of remakes. They licensed like. Uh, Halloween, you know, that's when they've got the Rob Zombie Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, anything that was a a title, they were just putting them through their factory. And I got the script. I was really excited, like, because I told my manager how much I love Near Dark, and he was like, oh, I've got a surprise for you, you know. So I auditioned for Severin, like the Bill Paxton role. Um, But the script was, it's that classic example of Hollywood misunderstanding what makes the film great. They focused on all the kind of genre elements that get people in through the door. Like in that uh, Behind the Scenes documentary, they talk about how the film was completely mismarketed. You know, they put that f- picture of a bloody Bill Paxton on the cover and made everyone think that they were going to go see like, you know, some kind of uh, Argento type horror film. And it's not. It's something a bit more unique and, and considered than that. And this script was like, it's just generic paint-by-the-numbers vampire film. They kept all the same characters and the same storyline, but I believe Severin, instead of being like a, a cowboy, you know, a, like who's in a Jim Morrison face, he's, uh, he was a heavy metal, like an 80s heavy metal dude. So he had like, like a long mullet and, you know, a denim jacket with Iron Maiden in the back. And I don't remember much else about it being – the only the only improvement that I remember in that reboot script was they fleshed out Homer, the boy, the boy vampire, a lot more, and um, they gave him this kind of B storyline where he was on a mission to destroy pedophiles. So Homer would, 
Yeah, so Homer would like go online and chat with pedophiles and then go out and eat them. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's actually, you know, wow. that that that's a that's a pretty good update. Like if you're going to if you're going to redo Near Dark, that's something that you that that you would definitely include. That's uh, that's also a pretty dark thing to add to a movie that I'm guessing <laughs> isn't really going into any other tropes, right? No, yeah, they don't really. No, no, they don't. It was, it was, it was like I said, pretty much paint by the numbers. You know, a big third act showdown. I can't even remember how it ended, but I, I remember there's a it was as a Michael Bay produced film, so I do remember there's a lot of explosions and then a post credits teaser where you see um, Severin rise from the ashes or something like that, which they pretty much talked about again in that behind the scenes documentary. If they ever did a sequel, that that's how it would start. Yeah, that's. Uh- that's fascinating that even updating that character to be into Iron Maiden kind of feels like it misses mm. the point. Like, why would he be into Iron Maiden? Of course, he'd be more into Jim Morrison and that kind of look. Yeah, well, it's also to, you know, what Catherine Bigelow and Eric Red were trying to do with that script was merge two genres that had a, a, a commonality in terms of theme, which is the Western, you know, Westerns are often about loneliness and isolation. And it's just a cowboy riding across the plains, getting involved in, you know, whatever. And, you know, that's what vampire films or stories are often about isolation and living forever and, and immortality. And, and that's the, that's the interest. And that's the thing that makes near dark. So unique is that they genuinely, explore the idea of immortality and what the reality of that existence would be like because we all think it'd be awesome you know and never have to worry about getting sick or dying but then you've got this fucking eternity and you've still got to like pay rent and <laughs> buy clothes and find somewhere to sleep and you know and and so you probably you can't stay anywhere for too long either like you know because no. people are suddenly looking and thinking geez that charlie clawson it's been 50 years and he still looks 22 <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, look, Keanu's been getting away with it for the last 40 years, so. But, yeah, no, I just – I love that idea that, you know, we know the sexy vampire back to front. Like, that's been done, and we know the monstrous vampire, and we know the gothic vampire. But what about the vampire that's like a nine-to-fiver? That's what it feels like. They're, they're blue-collar – like I said, it reminds me of Snowtown in a lot of ways. Like, Snowtown was this, you know, peak – you know, under the under the rug of like just the the gross underbelly of people who have been forgotten by society and left aside. So take those people and then give them immortality. What does that look like? Well, they're not necessarily going to aspire to any more. They're just going to use their immortality to accrue more of their addiction. Like you know, whether that's heroin or or blood or or whatever it is. It's just um yeah, it's 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 kind of gross. Like it's weird. It's a it's it's such a it's such a um contradiction isn't it because the film is so beautiful to look at but it's gross <laughs> like it has a real visceral quality to it they smell yeah like you can you can sense that from the first time you see them also i, I think one of the really smart things they do is that the the genre side of it uh, on the on the vampire side is kind of vague as well so you're not yes. kind of held up with you know those tropes that can stop a narrative from moving forward yeah, there's no point at which, you know, uh, some Van Helsing-type character comes in and goes, Silver, stake through the heart, cut off their head. Like, there's no exposition. It's like you are learning uh, things about them as Caleb is learning. The only – I guess the only consistent trope with uh, vampire lore is the sunlight thing, right? That That's the only thing because I can't think – there's no 
There's not there's nothing else. There's no garlic or anything like that. And even that is treated more like a realistic skin condition, yeah. you know, where they're just extra sensitive to sunlight, you know. I mean, there is <laughs> those, you know, spoilers <laughs> at the end of that where the, the vampire – I mean, it's 30 years old. I, I don't know if I have to do a spoiler warning. But, um, you know, there's some there's some pretty dodgy uh, comping uh, composition visual effects at the end with Homer running down running down the street and bursting into flame. But at the same time, it's, it's so beautiful. Like, you know, horror, horror can be quite um, – beautiful and 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 profound in its imagery and uh i didn't realize till last night when i was watching the making of uh that the the dop is the same guy who shot like a bunch of amazing genre films in the 80s like terminator and fright night and because it's it's all shot at night and that really i think that really influences the tone and the feel of it you know the the cinematographer uh, talks about in the documentary that you know, when you're shooting during the daytime, you're kind of stuck because you can't dictate where people's eye goes. Like you have to show them everything. But at night, if you don't light it, they don't see it. And so when you're telling a story about, you know, isolation or, you know, being like, you know, there's people living this certain existence, then you can just funnel them, you know, to from, from location to location. And I do sort of feel like the daytime stuff in near dark – is 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 a bit underwhelming compared to some of the beautiful uh, nighttime cinematography, like that shot before they enter the bar where they crest. I mean, it's a very eighties shot, and you wouldn't get away with it these days. But they crest the hill; they're beautifully backlit. It's just their silhouettes, you know. That is a that's like an iconic movie poster imagery, and I just think that you know when I when I. When I think about Near Dark, I just think about that 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 combination of just the beautiful imagery with just the gross and <laughs> smelly <laughs> characters that you're seeing on screen. Well, I feel like that shot that you just described should have been the poster. I think it was in some countries. Like it's very interesting. Yeah, I did a um for a while I got quite obsessed with tracking down like all the different um uh, uh, posters from around the world and it is funny depending on what market you're in like how far they lean into the horror there was i think it was the french market where it was the more because clearly you know more art house audience the, so they they picked that shot with a superimposed of um caleb and, and may kissing which i think is probably more what the film is about because that sort of suggests it's a romance with supernatural themes but then you go to thailand <laughs> and it's one of those drew struzan you know really realistic kind of pictures of it's a skeletal like literally it's bill paxton he's a skeleton from the waist up <laughs> you know bones sticking out of his leather jacket but his face is normal with maybe like a hole in his cheek with a shotgun over his shoulder and it's like I don't remember Bill Paxson using the at all. <laughs> okay, we've heard what the movie's about, but we prefer this image, so we'll go with this. The well, it is a sh- sorry, go on. No, no, go on. I'll just say it's, it is such a shame that you know. There's often um, I follow a lot of kind of like horror directors and writers on Twitter, and it seems like every few years, like a horror film, like a Get Out, will you know come along and get Oscar nominations, you know, like or you know a classy one like Hereditary, and and suddenly like in film critic 
land. It's like, oh, have horror films come of age? And these guys are always like, fuck you guys. Like this genre has been around and been sophisticated for a long, long time. Just because the films that get mass marketed or do really well, you know, can be dumb or lowbrow doesn't mean you don't have very skilled, intelligent people, you know, behind the scenes. Like real horror you know, when it's done well, is that thing of affecting you on a subconscious level where you feel gritty or gross, you know? Hereditary, which I, I didn't like as much as, as Midsummer, his his next film, which I, I think Midsummer is, a, is an amazing movie. But those films are like, they're art. Like, you know, they are they are dealing with themes of, of grief or, or isolation or love or, you know, any of these kind of things. But it, it, it kind of is frustrating when people – I understand if people don't want to watch horror. I'm not saying that you know, everyone should watch horror, but to dismiss an entire genre yeah. as being just what the exploitation end of that genre is, is insane. It's like saying all drama, and I can say this because I was on it, all drama is Home and Away. No, <laughs> Home and Away is just a very commercial version of what that is. You know, it, it all fits under the same tent, and it's just ridiculous that one genre would be classed as somehow being lesser than another. Oh, yeah. You can't watch Tony Collette and Hereditary and not say that's one of the best performances in the last ten years. Like, that is a phenomenal... Like, every every facial tick and every movement yeah. of muscles is just etched into my brain. <laughs> Don't you reckon it's like, in a weird way, her performance in Hereditary is almost like it's like the character from Sixth Sense. Like, it's almost like we've picked up with her, you know, 15 years later and Cole's grown up and this is her new family because it feels like the same character. Like, she, she's an amazing actress and her performance is phenomenal. I don't even know if she was nominated for an Oscar, but she should have. But, yeah, those that, that sense of being on edge because there is weird shit going on in your home it doesn't have to be a horror film. Like, it doesn't have to be – sorry. It doesn't have to be a supernatural element for you to identify with that. If you've ever, you know, dealt with an alcoholic or a drug addict or someone with, you know, um, severe mental health issues, you know, it can be incredibly draining and confronting. And that's what horror, real good, sophisticated horror is about addressing. You know, I read Lee Winnell talking about he didn't really know what Saw was until 10 years after he wrote it. You know, he just wrote this film about all these fucking death traps. And then he realized afterwards it was him dealing with anxiety, you know, his sense of like his fear of, you know, impending doom and, and, and anxiety. And, you know, those films have a, a veneer of just like exploitation, commercial, whatever. And then all the sequels enhance that image. But at its core, the reason it works and it's affecting is because it speaks to something very primal in us, which we understand. And to bring it back to near dark, you know, it's just that addiction. You know, if you've ever seen, if you've ever had the misfortune of knowing someone uh, become an addict or seeing someone disappear into addiction, that's kind of what happens. They get stinky. They get secretive. They, you know, live on the fringes of society. You kind of lose them for a bit, you know, and, and, and this is a film made 30 years ago, but it feels so contemporary. Like the, my other criticism that dates it is the, the soundtrack. Now, because you haven't seen it recently, maybe you, you don't remember, but it's a, a horribly intrusive soundtrack. It does not, it does not match the, the beauty and the, and the, and the, and the class of the rest of the film. It's, it's all of its time. It has that kind of John Carpenter kind of synth feel. The bar scene contains little notes of it in there, but, 
It's just it's uh, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh god, I wish they just had the budget to kind of get like I don't know, like a James Horner or just a classier a kind of composer in because I think that you know getting that that exploitation horror soundtrack that's probably what makes people think that it's not a classy picture when if you'd had you know like a really good composer. I think that film would be, you know, elevated right up there. Yeah, you can't underestimate a good soundtrack to uh, just add a little bit of extra class to something. Uh, something that you also said that was really interesting about uh, someone going into addiction, which applies to these characters, which is often people who are dealing with something like that can be really charismatic and can be lots of fun 100%. and can, you know, win you over. And then suddenly you're realising, why did I just give them $150? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Like that is, I mean, and that is really Severin's character, isn't it? Like there is that, there is that bit where um, uh, Caleb sort of proves his worth to the group after the shootout with the police. He gets the van and rescues them all, and you know he's he's part of the gang, and you do sort of feel like, yeah, this is cool. And it's like, yeah, but then you know the party's going to end at some point. Like you say, it's like 4 a.m. and you're at the bar and all of a sudden all that fun quickly evaporates as soon as a fight breaks out or something horrible happens. Someone's accused of stealing something, you know, and it all, this shit hits the fan. And the documentary is so fascinating because Lance Henriksen is, you know, from every interview I've ever seen, it appears to be a really interesting and gentle guy. But... He really got into character, and that story about him picking yeah. up the hitchhiker and, and just staying in character <laughs> is him. fucking insane. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Like, you, you can find this documentary on, on YouTube, Behind the Scenes of Near Dark, but he talks about how he wanted a look, a certain look. He decided the character, or maybe he decided it was in the script that as a civil, this guy was turned in the Civil War, but he came up with the backstory, you know, that he was involved, he was in the, uh, the Navy during the Civil War. He was on a ship that had got bombed. He was washed ashore and some kind of harpy took pity on him and turned him. And so from that point, like everything that he did with his wardrobe and his appearance was all, you know, stemming from that origin and so one of the things he wanted to do was give himself these horrendous like Nosferatu-esque nails so he went to some nail salon in LA and got them to (laughs) put on these like acrylic like clawy nails which he then broke off with pliers so they were just jagged and gross and he tells this story about um, you know getting everyone flew to location because you know it's the fastest way but he wanted to drive and just inhabit the character which makes sense when you think about you know they're they're a nomadic group of vampires so he picks up this hitchhiker and just uses this dude as a test case to see how well he's nailed the character he wants to see how much he can intimidate this guy so the dude gets in the car and he and he orders him to roll in the cigarette and then like just like completely complains about it and just bitches and moans and just like stares at this guy the whole time like he's a meal until the fucking guy gets out of the car and it's like what does he say he pushed it right to the edge like like it could have gone real down south but he's like no no i think i'm in the zone for jesse could you have followed through with something like that like at some point i'd have to say hey sorry i've got a role in a movie like i just couldn't stay in character like that I look, I'm not a method actor. I always <laughs> believe that there should be like a change between you know after cut that like, you know you can you can drop it. Um, but at the same time, like hearing you know Catherine Bigelow talk about the rehearsal process and what they did to bring that group together, I think it's uh, as an actor I got really excited about. Oh, wouldn't it be so much fun? Like so, they talk about um, because they were this family of nomadic 
vampires who had to protect themselves from sunlight, you know, one of the most important things they had to do was black out any room they're in or any vehicle that they're in straight away. So they would run these rehearsals where they would go into like a blank room and then they would all take roles. You take the window, you know, you block the door and they just had it down to like this military precision that started off taking five minutes to black out a room. They got it down to 30 seconds. And within that, they are staying in character and they're adopting their roles and they're exploring how the dynamics of the group work. And that is so evident. And it's so evident when in the scenes where they're together. There's a similar story I heard about the making of the original Mad Max um, where the guys who are playing the bikers, they decided that they were – because they were shooting in Werribee, I believe, like outside of, outside of Melbourne. And so the bikers who had all been cast in Sydney, they all got their, their bikes, their Yamahas, whatever, whoever had donated you know, to Mad Max, first Mad Max. And they rode down from Sydney to Melbourne together and they stayed at hotels and then we went drinking together and they formed this bond. And then by the time they arrived in Melbourne and checked into their hotel, they were feeling a bit like a biker gang. And then they were like, well, fuck it. Why don't we start tormenting the cast who are playing the cops, the bronzers? So they started like leaving notes under Mel Gibson and Steve Bisley's door, like, we're going to fuck you up and just tormenting them. And they didn't spend any time together on set. They kept in separate groups. And when you watch that film, I know a lot of people find the original Mad Max a bit, you know, uh, corny or laughable, but I still reckon that, that there is a lot of menace in those biking Yeah, games. absolutely. Like, I reckon you haven't been to a country town if you don't find the, the menace there. Like, that is still... Like, I rewatched it recently and I was still creeped out by a lot of that stuff and knowing how far, the, you know, each town that they were in was, you know, the next town over is probably ages away and those people in this one, well, they're fucked. Like, yeah. this, is, this is their lives yeah. now. Yeah, it's like when that – so that couple who see them come into town and just like, you know, fuck shit up and they jump in their car and they think they've got away and then you just see the motorbikes. And if you've ever done a long-distance drive, that is an eerie feeling when if a truck starts tailgating you or, you know – because you just think, well, if anything happens uh, – I'm on my own here, and you know, I don't know. Like Gemma is, is is highly suspect on me because every time we drive into the bush, if we're going up like a windy hill and there's like forest either side of us, I'm always like, I reckon you could dump a body here and no one would ever find it. You wouldn't even need to. You wouldn't even need to bury it. Like this is just such a remote area. I reckon you could just kill someone, just pull up by the side of the road, just kick him down the kick him down in the scrub, and no one would ever find it. And she's like, "That's a weird obsession of yours." To always bring that up in remote areas and other romantic quotes on the way. Yeah, of course, that's how I proposed. What's the um, and what's the what's the most method you've gone on a role, or what's the what's the biggest bit of backstory that you've added to a character when you've created? one um that's a good question i don't know if it was method but when i did uh the second series of wolf creek um because the character uh again spoilers for anyone who's watching the second series of wolf creek um i get kidnapped in like episode two or three and then they find me again in the last episode after days of torture and so i um I would get like three or four hours of prosthetics because there's a lot of gore they had to apply to me. And in that time, I was like, well, I want to get in the mindset of someone who's been abducted and tortured. So I watched a ton of documentaries about serial killers and, you know, Ed Gein and um, uh, um, and Jeffrey Dahmer and what they actually did to people and would, you know, 
the further you go into the like the specific details and you allow your imagination to to go it's quite hard to disconnect from like the actress who played my um, wife in the show, because we shot for a bit and then we had a break and then I came back to do that last episode, because um, we we're quite friendly, we knew each other prior to doing the job, is I said, let's have no contact. So let's just make as if I've just disappeared. I won't text you. So the first time you'll see me is when on set, when you come in and you find me tied up. And and um, and so we shot the scene uh, and so I'm sitting there and she comes in to find me and <laughs> she just burst into tears, like completely beautiful, spontaneous. They used the take like, cause you know, you sort of, and then I kind of started crying because it was like, you've just, I've just spent like hours and hours and hours in this, um, in this pit of kind of like uh, depression and, and well, well, I guess the, the hopelessness, you know, that's the thing that I got from, uh, you know, reading up on all these victims of these serial killers is that, you know, these serial killers, you know, and, and the really smart ones, um, they left no avenue for their victims to get out, you know. And so if you were, you know, if you were a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer, like there is a horrendous story and I, and like, I don't want to take, <laughs> take your podcast into too dark a territory, but, you know, one of his victims um, actually escaped. You know, he drugged this guy and was preparing to torture him. And the guy managed to get out of um, get out of his basement or wherever it was and get onto the street and flag down the police car. And so you'd think, oh, my God. So the police pulled up and said this, but because he was so drugged and disoriented, he probably wasn't making a lot of sense. And then Jeffrey Dahmer follows him out and goes up to the police and apologizes for his boyfriend, you know, causing so much trouble. He's just had a bit too much to drink and then takes him back to the house. And just I mean, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about that story because I'm like the absolute despair of that moment if you're that person because you think you're out you know you think you've somehow done it and then the devil comes and taps you on the shoulder and leads you back down to hell so yeah like i mean that's that's probably the deepest i've gone but you know i've got a lot of friends who are actors who have really like you know i I had a friend who did a very similar thing to lance henriksen where he had to play like a kind of fairly uh roguish isolated kind of guy so he did do a road trip on his own drove from western australia back to melbourne and he just went a bit wild like just went a bit crazy didn't shave didn't shower and just allowed himself to sort of feel like what it was to be outside the bounds of society i mean even jeff jarrett um, Jeff Jarrett, John Jarrett, sorry, Jeff Jarrett's a wrestler. Uh, John Jarrett on the uh, on Wolf Creek, like he he'd, he'd sort of eased up by the time we got to the TV series. But I know in prior uh, versions, the films and stuff, that he he has to keep himself very isolated from the rest of the cast. He can't be joking and laughing at lunchtime if he then has to, you know, cut your nose off <laughs> in the next scene. Like he wants to be able to view you as um, what did he say at the very first rehearsal? It was like uh, uh, he can't, here's his here's his all meat buffet. <laughs> And he saw the rest of the cast. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Matt, what do you do to shake it off? Like after you've gone into something, um, like do you immediately just go and watch Disney movies? What do you do? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. I don't know if I did shake it off. I think it sits with you for a bit. I think you've just got to be in that. I, I think there is a, there's a lot of catharsis in actually performing. Like, because, you know, look – I never get to the point where I don't know where I am or, you know, I'm always aware that it, that it's, it's make pretend, but there is a lot of catharsis in screaming and shouting and, 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 you know, you've built to that point. So, you know, that is the kind of release. But then afterwards, I imagine it's, you know, it's the opposite 
um, mood, but I, I imagine it's the same as when you come off stage, you know, when you've, you know, just killed. It's not like you then go watch a drama to kind of bring yourself down. Like it's just you just have to ride that buzz for a while, negative. I mean, I imagine if you've had a bad gig, it's probably a similar thing where you've just got to like, okay, well, fuck, man, like no movie's going to distract me from this. I'm just going to, I've just got to ride this out. Um, you know, I, I think, I think you can decompress with um, booze, <laughs> but probably, probably not the healthiest way. Oh, man. But so you, you're right, though. Sometimes you just kind of like you can feel it in your fingers, in your skin, and you're just kind of laying there, you know, waiting for it to kind of work its way out of your systems. Yeah. So, uh, well, I should uh, let you go, but uh, you'll have to come back on, and we, we should make this a, a regular thing. Bring in your no. cultish films that you what? love oh, and want to discuss. Mate, I would love to. I'm actually uh, – because I moved house recently, so I'm in the process of um, – uh, migrating a bunch of stuff up to my new home and I've got a huge DVD collection that uh, Gemma's like just you know get rid of it and I'm like no because like everything not everything's on streaming so I, I'm gonna have to cull I will probably let go of the DVDs that are widely available like all the big sort of movies and stuff but there are some smaller ones that I've you know sought out you know in in either on eBay or, or traveling overseas or whatever which i would love to come back on and talk about some more cult movies because there's a there's a bunch of films that would i'd love the excuse to revisit but uh if you haven't seen near dark um i would encourage you to order a dvd if that's the only way to get it because it really is like it's an undiscovered gem i mean i think a lot of film people know about it but if there's a wider audience out there who who are unfamiliar i think it holds up incredibly well um by today's standards i think it's just performances i say to jem last night actually after i went to bed and i would watch the the documentary it's like it's just it's the perfect storm of you know a, a hot director an amazing cast an incredible production design and cinematography and the like i said the only thing that lets it down is the music <laughs> but that's forgivable and um i think it's incredibly uh influential too Oh, yeah. And also, like, the idea of the uh, horror and the Western, like, I, once again, it's just not something that you come across that often as well. I think I think I remember a, a, a Jonah Hex horror comic from, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. I think um, John Carpenter, to bring him back in the conversation, he made one in the late 90s called Vampires, starring James Woods, uh, which is... It's similar. It's it's, but it's it's nowhere near as good because he kind of implants the gothic horror into the West. So it's like a Dracula type vampire with you know the long black hair and the and then and you know, and the and the black suit and stuff. And it's like that's that's not that's not the point. <laughs> you know, like you're not you 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 want to reimagine the mythology and um, yeah, I just think that. I can't think of another vampire film that is as good as Near Dark. Even, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, the, the Bram... St oh, 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 I should say, as Catherine Bigelow pronounces it in the Behind the Scenes Directory, Bram, Bram Stoker. Did you, did you pick up on that? I'd never heard it pronounced like that. Bram? Bram Stoker. Um, you know, that's, a, that's an amazing film, but that is very much in that traditional Gothic uh, style. But if, of the modern... Uh, horror films and I, I sort of loathe to call it a horror film because I, I just feel like it's deeper than that you know it's sort of it's more than that it's not um, not that I'm dissing horror of course but it's just there, there's more to it there's more going on there's romance and there's social commentary and it's just a, it's just such a it's such a great film I'm desperate to watch it again now like I'm gonna have to fly down to Sydney and get my DVD ASAP 
Yeah, right. Well, now it's, uh, you know, we'll put this podcast up and you can claim the flight on tax. Yeah, brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Charlie, always good to see you. And uh, please come back and uh, share some more of your favourite cult movies with us. I'd love to. Thanks, Justin. Thank you to Charlie for taking time out amongst all of his podcast work and being a dad to talk to me about Near Dark. Uh, If you're enjoying people's work that you hear on this podcast, like Charlie or Ryan Hughes in the past, Rachel Melanta, all of the people that you've heard on this podcast, don't forget to let them know via their social media handles. It's really easy to work on these podcasts and live in a bit of a vacuum. So, any positive reinforcement that you have that you would like to give to these people, you know, just pointing out that you enjoyed them being a guest on this show, that would be really appreciated. And uh, I would, you know, it would make me very happy to know that you were doing that. So if you uh, have time or the inclination to reach out, let them know. And, uh, you know, maybe that'll encourage them to come back soon. (laughs) Uh, Don't forget the live show is coming up soon. You can find tickets for that at giantdwarf.com.au. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a positive review online or recommend us to anyone you think who might enjoy the work my friends and I do here. I'll be back later this week with Alexi Toliopoulos. We're going to kick off season two of The Leftovers. I just rewatched it the other day. Super emotional. (laughs) <laughs> made me really emotional. Um, but anyway, I don't want to preempt anything. We'll talk about that on Thursday. Let's finish today with a quote from the sadly departed but wonderful Bill Paxton. I've had a career that is kind of under the radar, but sure is varied, and I've been so blessed to be able to get paid to do something I love to do. That's the goal for all of us, really, isn't it? Until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.